Today, Pastor David continues our series on the book of Genesis. We'll see what happened in the days of Noah and what God is saying to us through this incredible story. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. I want to get started this morning by showing you guys some images. These are images from about eight years ago. All right. These, and so these, I realize these images may conjure up different emotions in different people, but I want us to look at some of these images. All right. Do you, you guys remember any of these? This is one that was circulating all over our nation uh, eight years ago. Here's another one, an image of things that we saw right here in South Carolina, right here around our area. Another one. Uh, do you remember these? You remember this time? Like I said, it may it may strike different emotions in you because we all experience this in, in different ways. Some of you may or may be recently new to South Carolina. We've had a lot of people move into our area. Maybe you weren't around during that time and when the floods and uh, this this thousand year rain is what they called it, I think, or whatever it was that came and. And, uh, and just poured over our state. Maybe you were like me, you were here and you were praying for the rainbow to show up, right? And the, just to, to bring it in to all this. Maybe, maybe you were like some of these guys and you got in a boat and you went out for a ride on, on the water, right? And now maybe their ride was, was, we just need to find something fun to do in this time because it's not very fun right now. Or maybe their ride was purposeful. But we're going into a passage of scripture today that when, when I started studying, it immediately reminded me of that time eight years ago. Because we're moving along into Genesis and we're looking uh, at our origin story of creation and humanity. We're moving right into the story of Noah. It's one of the most popular stories in the Bible, so I'm sure that you have likely heard this story and you know something about it. You know that there was a flood. You know that there was a really big boat and there was a guy named Noah And you know that the end of that flood, there came a rainbow. And with that rainbow, there came a promise, right? And the promise that came with that rainbow was not a promise of a pot of gold at the end of it. Uh, I'm very disappointed if you didn't know this to let you know, I I have visual proof. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, my family and I looked out of our back window and we had a full rainbow in our backyard. I brought an image of it. I don't know if you can see, you can kind of make the rainbow out there. Full rainbow in our backyard. There was not a pot of gold at either end of it. I was highly disappointed and I was not going to go out and dig up my yard to see if it's under the ground. I was not going to do it. But the promise that came with this rainbow that God put in front of Noah It was a promise that was far greater than a pot of gold, if you can believe that. We have seen from the very beginning that God created everything out of his love. He created us to exist with him, to commune with him. He is, he was not alone. The Trinity was there. Jesus was a part of creation from the very beginning. What we've seen, we've been created in love to commune with one another, to commune with God and to cultivate his creation for his glory and for man's good. That's what God put us here for. Last week, we looked at the fact that, that there's an enemy that wants to separate us from God, that wants to get in the middle and separate us from one another. And where this serpent came to deceive man and separate us from God, we know that eventually a lamb comes to reconcile us to God and one to another. And that was Jesus Christ. And now we get into Noah and we wonder what has been happening, what's been going on since Cain and Abel started establishing their family lines. Apparently not a lot good. <laughs> has been going on. When we get into Genesis chapter six, we're, we're immediately hit with there, the fact that there is a rapid spiritual degeneration that is taking place in the life of man. 
think about this in Genesis chapter one or in Genesis chapter two, Adam and Eve had to be convinced to sin. Genesis chapter four, Cain couldn't be talked out of sinning. At the end of Genesis chapter four, we see Cain's down the line. One of his grandchildren, Lamech boasting of his sin. It's a rapid spiritual degeneration. And then we get into Genesis chapter six and we see this verse in verse five. And it says this, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. This is the place that man has gotten themselves into. We have this battle that's taking place within man between the deceptiveness of sin and the truth of God's word. It's a battle that hasn't stopped. It's what, what are they going to believe? Are they going to buy into the deceptiveness of sin or are they going to hold on to the truth of God's word? From the very beginning, God had created man and he told him, be fruitful and multiply. And we get into Genesis chapter six and Genesis chapter four and then Genesis chapter six. And we see that man is not just being fruitful and multiply. They're not, they're not just creating life. They're taking it upon themselves to take life as if they were gods. God had not given them that word. We said last week, when we were looking at the line of Cain, even though they were, uh, they were sinful There was human progress that was taking place. There was growth. There was creative ingenuity. But every bit of of progress that was taking place within man was all external. There was no internal progress. There was external cultural progression, but there was no internal moral progression. What's happening? You go back to Genesis chapter 5 verse 3. Look what Moses says. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him in his very image. And he named his son Seth. See, God had created man in his image. Sin had deceived man. And now man is being born in the image of Adam. We're being born with a sinful nature. We've been born with a nature that's prone to sin. And man is solving all kinds of external problems. But they're demonstrating more and more internal problems. Man is not man's savior. Salvation has to come from somewhere else. So when we get into Genesis chapter 6, we see where God begins to portray his power as God. And begin to reveal that only he can deliver from evil. And so as we go into Genesis chapter 6, this is what I want us to understand this morning. And this is kind of the the truth that I want to unpack today through the scripture. And it's this one thing. The judgment of God is inevitable. But the grace of God is available. And I think this is what we see all throughout Genesis 6, all throughout Genesis 7, 8. Nine, as we get into the scripture, and I want to unpack this today. 
So as we get into Genesis chapter 6, if you read that, if you're part of our email list that go out every week, I kind of tell you the passage of Scripture that I'm going to be referencing. Obviously, you know, Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9 is four chapters. Don't, don't worry, I'm not going to read all of those and then preach about them today, all right? So, so if you read that and you get into Genesis chapter 6, you see that there are these sons of God that marry the daughters of men. And they have these children called the Nephilim. And then you get into all of it and you see the flood that's going to come. And you see that Noah builds a really big boat. You've heard about that boat before. And you see that all the animals get on that boat. And, and you see God bring the flood. And then you, you see what happens from that. And so questions arise, right? Just like we've said from... The last couple of weeks, questions that come up in Genesis. Who are the sons of God? <laughs> Who are the daughters of men? Who is this talking about? Who are the Nephilim? What are, what are these people? What, what, are the, what is this talking about? How did the animals actually get on the boat? How in the world did Noah get all of these animals to get on that boat? Why did Noah not scream certain animals before they got on the boat? We've all asked that question, right? We, you wonder, was people, people wonder and they, they debate over was the flood that came, was it local just to that area or was it a global flood that took over the whole earth? Why in the world would God choose to do this and to bring a flood? Why would God do it this way? Do we even know if this is true or not? Have they ever discovered an ark? Have they ever discovered where this can take place? Maybe, you, maybe you've had these questions. Maybe you've never asked these questions before. Maybe you've got other questions. All of these questions are good questions. Some of these questions are fun to explore, but take us away from the central focus of what Moses is trying to communicate about God and about sin and about what is taking place here. I think just like we said at the beginning with creation two weeks ago, there are things that are, that they're fun to study, but there's some things that we just can't be dogmatic about because they're not crystal clear. There are other things that we see that they are clear. All right. Now let's think about, let's look at the, the real quick. Let's answer this question because it's at the beginning of Genesis six. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? What is this talking about? There's some believe that the sons of God are fallen angels. We talked about them last week. We said Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation chapter 12. Jesus actually references them. Sometimes this scenario in, his, in the gospels when he's speaking to his listeners, that there were fallen angels. There were angels that were tossed from heaven. Some believe that these are fallen angels that, that married daughters of man and they had children. Some believe that these evil presences in, inhabited human men. And those men married these women and they had these children that they called Nephilim. Others believe that it's just kind of, if you were here uh, months ago when we did a series on Ezra and Nehemiah, many believe that it's kind of a situation. What we saw there, there was an intermarrying of those who walked closely and followed God with those who openly opposed God. There was an intermarriage of those believing and those non-believing coming together, right? And, 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 and when that happened, the, cultural, the culture degraded because of that. So this is what, this is what's happening. Now, I don't, this is what some believe. I don't want to linger a lot on this. The confusion comes when you get to the fact that they're birthing these people called Nephilim. Nephilim, when you see these mentioned again in numbers, when Moses sent the spies, if you know the story of, of Moses and the children of Israel, Moses sent spies in to look at the promised land and the spies come back and they tell them that we're like graft hoppers in the eyes of these people. These guys are giants. They call them Nephilim, right? The, the word Nephilim comes, the root of that word is a Hebrew word that it means fallen. Okay. It means fallen. So what we know about these people is they're all fallen. They're all in sin. They're likely big and they're likely sinning in a big way. All right. Now, when you get into 
to scripture and you see these phrase, the phrase sons of God, it does typically refer to angels, but it's never really in regards to fallen angels. In the new, in the old Testament, there's two primary names that are often, God has multiple names throughout the old Testament that are, that are used to convey who he is and his character. But there's two prominent names. There's Elohim and there's Jehovah. We see these names being used in both, both names being used in Genesis chapter six. When it starts at the very beginning of Genesis chapter six, it says that God is looking out over his creation. That is Elohim. Elohim means sovereign ruler, judge, creator of all God. That's what Elohim is. And then it says that when the Lord God looks and he begins to speak, that's using the name Jehovah. Jehovah means personal God, a God that interacts with his creation, an eternal God, a God who was, who is, and who will be. So basically when you're looking at the context of this passage and, and, and you're looking at the situation that's, that's playing, that's playing out here, you're seeing the God behind all of creation, looking at his creation and then speaking in to creation to it. And you look at the context of the fact that God is creator. He created, we said this in week one, that he created his, to, for reproduction to happen according to its own kind. When you see throughout scripture that angels do not reproduce, they have no need for marriage. It's hard for me to think of it as fallen angels or angels in any way. I kind of look at it as the intermarriage of those following God and those not following God. Because we see that happen and that warned against all throughout scripture. Again, it's interesting study. It's interesting to look at. Here's the truth. Here's what you basically need to know. Because of sin... There is spiritual warfare. God wants to save man. Satan wants to destroy man. There is a corruption that's taking place. Right? If we get caught up in all of that, we're missing that point. There's a corruption of sin that wants to take place. And where is it happening? It's happening in the family. It's happening at home. The home and the family is the first institution that was created by God. The home, the family was created before the government, before any government, before the church. The home was created by God and instituted by God. It was meant to be a place of love, a place of harmony, a place of teaching, a place of training, a place of growing in community with God together as a family. And now the enemy has come in and he's deceived man. And all that man is focused on is external progression. All that the family does is celebrate how they're progressing externally. And the only way they're getting married is completely based on infatuation. It's all been perverted. The enemy comes in and he twists the pleasures of God. And think about it. Genesis chapter one, God looks at his creation. God declares what's good. Genesis chapter two, man is deceived to declare for themselves what they believe to be good. Genesis chapter six, God looks again at his creation and he considers it wicked. There's a problem when we start declaring for ourselves what is good over what God has declared what is good. But that's what sin does. Sin is internal. It is a matter of the heart. Sin is progressive, it's pervasive, it grows. And sin is persistent. It never stops chasing. That's why, apart from the grace of God, we are lost. And we're going to see our first picture of God's grace in just a second, but I want us to see this verse 
in Genesis chapter six, verse six, look at what it says. So the Lord Jehovah was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. Think about that. God is looking at his creation and his heart is broken. That, that what it's saying is there is a complete emptiness, this abandoned feeling, this deep, deep grief that God is going through looking at what sin has done to his creation, what sin wants to continue to do to his creation, what sin is about to bring to his creation through his judgment. And he's heartbroken. Man looks, God looks at the heart of man and his heart is broken. It's sad. But then we meet Noah and we discover the grace of God. Verse eight, Noah found favor with the Lord. Verse nine, it says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Favor is the Hebrew word for grace. It's the first appearance that we see of grace, righteousness, and blamelessness in scripture. We are seeing a salvation by grace, not by works, unfold right in front of our eyes. Right from the very beginning. Now, how do we know that Noah believed? We know Noah believed because of how he lived. His faith produced in him a lifestyle that was different from everyone around him. Was Noah a perfect man? No. Did Noah still have weaknesses that he battled and a sin nature that he battled? Yes, we're going to see that in just a couple of moments. But was Noah under the grace of God? Yes. And he walked in close fellowship with God. There's one other man that we skipped from Genesis chapter 5. Let's look at him. Verses 23 and verse 24. Enoch lived 365 years. What is he, what was he doing? Walking in close fellowship with God. And then one day he disappeared because God took him. (laughs) How cool is that? You're like, I don't know if that's cool or not. I I mean, Enoch walked closely with God, just like scripture tells us Noah did. Walk with God. Enoch's got people all around him living into their 900s. He lived 300 and some years. You wonder when he disappeared and because God took him with him, if he's like, God, they got to live like 900 some years down there. I was a third of that. You're impressed by my math right there, right? I mean, it's just, just like that. I figured that up. But he, I don't, I don't think he was disappointed in the least. (laughs) But when we look at that, when we look at the fact that, you know, we focus a lot on how many years we want to live on this life. And it is extremely grieving when, when we lose people in this earth at such a young age. But when we look at things like this in scripture, what we need to remind ourselves is not to put so much importance on how many years we live, but how long do we walk with God? The importance is, are we walking with God? Now, am I saying that if you don't, if you wait till the very last minute to walk with God, no, that's not what I'm saying. Don't twist my words. But the importance is we walk with God. That's what God wants us to do, to walk with him. That's what he created us to do. Created us to walk with him. God didn't save Noah because God looked at Noah and he said, oh, look at what a righteous man. Noah became righteous because he believed in God. 
and he received the offer of God's grace. And because he recognized God's grace, he walked in close fellowship with God and was willing to obey God. Look at what the author of Hebrews says about Noah. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Noah built. Did that happen in a day? No. That means he obeyed. It happened, it took about a hundred years. His faith was not proven in a moment. His faith was not proven just by his yes. His faith was shown by his willingness to obey, his willingness to build, his willingness to continue moving forward. I I can only imagine that there was times where he had questions. There was times where he maybe doubted. There was times when he was ridiculed for what he was doing. But by faith, he kept building. By faith, he kept obeying. And Noah received salvation. From God, And then we see this and we say, well, he condemned. That's very harsh that he condemned people. What that's saying is Noah received salvation from God because he trusted God. He received his grace. God rescued him by his grace and his mercy on that boat. But those who refused, they were condemned because of their refusal to live by that same faith. Look at what Peter says about Noah. Second Peter chapter two, verse five. Peter says this. God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. And look at what it says. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Other translations say that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So what are we, what are we hearing? What are we, what are we getting? Noah tried to share with the world around him of the goodness of God's grace, but also of the impending judgment of God that comes because of sin. And no one would receive it. And so we get to God's judgment. And the aspect of the flood, it bothers people. The fact that God would do this, that God would send a flood and and, and would wipe out creation in this way, would wipe out life in this way, it's hard. I get that. It's hard. People look at this and say, that's genocide. God is evil for doing this. But we've got to remember, we have to look at everything in light of eternity and we have to look at everything from the fact that God is a God of love and God created everything in, in his love. And love is at the center of everything that God does. And even his justice, out of love, God brings justice. And it bothers us when we talk about judgment. But God's justice as judge does not negate God's love. God is a God of love. We come into this place where it appears as we read the scripture that God is now lessening the amount of days that man is going to live. He's not going to live to be 900 anymore. So what God is doing is God is lowering the amount of days that man apart, if they live their life apart from him, he's lessening the amount of days that man is able to do evil. God owes or loves his creation too much to let it persist in wickedness and evil. 
to let it continue going without understanding that there is a judgment for sin. So God's love, we understand this has existed since before creation. And we've seen God display his grace when he covered Adam and Eve in their shame. We're seeing God display his grace onto Noah. So we're seeing God's love. We're seeing God's grace. When you think about how many years has passed since the fall of man and sin has entered the world, 1600 years, the scripture tells us. And then Noah goes for another hundred or so years. And Peter tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness during that time, trying to warn others of the coming judgment of God, but of the goodness of God that wants to save. That's why he's building this boat. We're seeing God's patience. And then the fact that God rescues Noah and his family, we're seeing God's mercy, God's love, God's, uh, God's grace, God's patience, God's mercy. We look at this story, we want to judge God because he brings judgment. But we can't judge God. God judges us. And don't forget, verse 6, he was heartbroken over this. He was extremely bothered that this was going to happen. So we move on and God invites Noah He invites his family on the boat. He invites all the animals on the boat. They get on there. They all go get on the boat and they all go for a ride. Genesis chapter seven, verse 16. It tells us that a male and female of each kind entered just as God had commanded Noah. And then the Lord closed the door behind them. Now that was a big boat, right? Some of you, you've had the privilege of going to Kentucky to see the ark that they've built as a demonstration of what the ark looked like. I've never been. I haven't been able to go. Maybe one day I'll get there. But they say that the ark was one point, or or scripture tells us it was 1.4 million cubits feet, cubic feet. Scholars tell us that that is enough to fit 50 uh, or 522 modern railroad cars inside that. 35,000 animals into it. And so we can question how in the world do they get it? But listen, if we can believe that God created the world out of nothing, if we believe that God can resurrect Jesus Christ and save us from the sin of all, all of our own, if we believe that, we can believe that he got animals on the boat. All right? So we can believe that he did that. And then the floods come and then we get the questions. Well, is it local? Is it global? Right? And those that argue local, they say that, When you look at the word land, it's talking about the land around them. It's not talking about the land of whole earth. For example, when you get and you see that Moses sent or Noah sent out the dove to look over the land, that the dove didn't fly over all of the earth looking at all the land. He just flew over their land and he came back. When it talks about the earth, they're talking about the known earth at their time. But then the global, those that argue on the global side say that, uh, well, when God created the whole earth, so he flooded the whole earth, right? It's, it's a whole thing. We, we look at the big picture. Here's what we need to know. It was big enough, okay? It did what it needed to do, what God needed it to do. Now, has the ark ever been discovered? Do we know that there was an ark? In the 1950s, this is interesting. I'll just tell you this. There was a geological find to where in the mountains of Ararat, which is where scripture tells us that the ark landed, that there appears to be this formation 
That's the size and the scope of what the ark is said to have been built. Now, in more recent research from those who looked at that area through thermal imaging and through x-rays and things like that, and I've got a picture, I'll show you this picture, they reveal what the shape of that would have been looked like and what the impression of it could have been. And it looks a lot like what Scripture tells us of the ark. But, but here's what we need to do. Don't get distracted by the animals. Don't get distracted by the boat, by the floodwaters. The focus is that God's judgment is inevitable, but His grace is available. That there is a judgment that comes from God because of sin, but there is a grace that comes from God that frees us from that judgment. So we get into Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Look at what this says. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth and the floodwaters began to recede. Now, God remembered Noah. That doesn't mean God forgot Noah. That just simply means that God remembers, I made a promise with Noah. God does not forget his promises. He knows the promises that he has made with his creation. And Noah and his family eventually come off the boat. And we see that Noah makes a sacrifice of burnt offerings of which God had prepared in advance for him to take for this purpose. But God showed Noah that he remembered Noah. He remembered his family. Noah gets off the boat. Noah shows God, I remember you and I am thankful for what you've done. We have seen Noah walk with God. We've seen Noah work for God. We've seen Noah witness for God. We've seen Noah wait on God. And now we see Noah worship God. It's an incredible uh, pattern for our life. And then God made another promise. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, 22. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood, I'll never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. In other words, the seasons will exist. And we move on from this. We see that God gives to Noah and his family the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. And then he tells him this. No, no offense to our vegetarians or our vegans. But he tells them this, not only are the plants and the vegetation on the ground available for you to eat, the animals are available for you to eat as well. It's a good day for meat eaters on that day. But he does tell them this. He tells them that the lifeblood cannot still exist in the animal when you do that. Why? Because blood represents life. And life comes from God and life is to be valued. And he goes from there and he talks about the value and the importance that we need to put on valuing the life of each other. And we're going to wrap up and we're going to end with the covenant that God makes with Noah, the Noahic covenant. But first, real quick, I want us to see what happens to Noah. Genesis tells us that Noah cultivated the ground just like Adam was told to do. And Noah created a vineyard. And from this vineyard, 
he eventually got drunk off the wine that came from his vineyard. The scripture tells us that he winds up, winds up naked in his tent. Noah was saved by the grace of God, but Noah was not a perfect man. He still had a sin nature that he wrestled with. And then we see one of his sons who has a sin nature that he wrestles with as well. Ham. Ham comes in and he disrespects his father in some way. We don't know much about the situation. All we know is that Ham took advantage of his father's weakness. And instead of helping to restore his father in love, he drew attention to his father's sin and his embarrassment. Listen, how people respond to the sin and the embarrassment of others, how we respond to the sin and the embarrassment of others, it is an indication of our own character. Ham would father a child by the name of Canaan. Canaan would be the founding father of the Canaanites who would eventually become a very sexually perverted, idol-worshiping community that were enemies of the people of Israel. Shem and Japheth, who were the other sons of Noah, they come in when, when Ham comes out and tells them, they don't add on to that. They walk in backwards and they cover their father. See, our love one for another, we can't cleanse each other's sin by our love for one another. Only the, only the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sin. But because of our love for one another, we don't condone sin. Because of our love, we want God's best for each other. And because we love one another, we can help cover one another by not exposing and encouraging others to spread the news of the sin. But we can also help one another recover in the grace of God, in the strength of God, as community. And Shem... He gets chosen as the family line that would birth Abraham. That would lead to the covenant that comes with Israel. That we'll look at next week. And eventually to the covenant that comes from Christ to all of us. So is the story of Noah true? Yes, it's true. All throughout history, there's stories in every tribe of this gigantic flood that came. But when you look at scriptures, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel, they reference Noah. Luke, Peter, the author of Hebrews, reference, uh, they, they reference Noah. But ultimately, Jesus references Noah. And, and we really need to listen to what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. When the Son of Man returns, he's talking about himself. It will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, before the flood... The people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Listen, it's not been without warning. In Genesis chapter 9, God tells Noah that he gives him a covenant. But that covenant's not just for Noah. You see in Genesis chapter 9, it's for every generation to come. And he puts a rainbow in the sky. 
What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word that is used there for the rainbow is a word that means war bow or a battle bow. And obviously a bow has the shape of a rainbow. God was laying down his war bow in the heavens between him and man. And he says, I will not accomplish ultimate salvation for man by shooting my wrath onto man. But instead, which way does the bow face? Faces up. It's as if God is saying, I will take the wrath. He's pointing to, 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 to what would happen through Jesus Christ. It is a foreshadowing of what would take place when Christ would come and take the wrath of God upon himself for us. Just as the ark was provided by God, Jesus came as God from heaven to us. The ark was sealed, scripture tells us, with pitch. And the Hebrew word for pitch is a word that comes from the words for atonement or covering. And just as the pitch covered the cracks of that boat and kept it from being destroyed by the flood, Jesus Christ and his blood covers our sins and atones for our sins. There was only one ark that could save. There's only one Jesus. There's only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus. The ark saved everybody who entered it. Jesus Christ saves everyone who comes to the Father through him. And listen, just like we saw in that passage of Scripture when all the animals in Genesis chapter 7, when they all got on the boat, and God shut the door behind them, one day, God will shut the door. And he will bring a ram to time as we know it. The author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as each person is destined to die once. And after that comes judgment. Jesus tells us there is a day coming where judgment will take place. And listen, we often take the time to plan out our days We plan what we're going to do. We're planning where we're going to go. We're planning what's going to happen this next day. Some of you don't. Some of you just fly by the city of bridges and that's fine. But we plan, we'll plan, we plan. The most important day you can plan is your last on this earth. And here's the thing. I don't know of anyone that knows when that day will be. There are some that are told how long they have to live. But even then, they don't know the day. But you do know the way that you can escape the judgment of God, and that's by the grace of Jesus Christ. Look at what Peter went on to write in his letter. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not really being slow about his promise, as some people think. <laughs> no, he's being patient for your sake. Because he does not want anyone to be destroyed. But he wants everyone to repent. God has made the way of your salvation possible. He wants you to walk in his favor. He wants you to walk in obedience with him. His judgment, though, is inevitable. But his grace is available. Don't take for granted his patience. 
Receive his grace. Live in his grace. Not just in one moment of yes, but in every day walking as closely as you can with God. Following God. Trusting God. Obeying God. Walk in his grace. Stand with me this morning. Father, we are so grateful today for your grace. We are so grateful for Jesus Christ and the mercy that he brings to us by putting his self in the place that we should be. He took the wrath for our sin. God, let us not take for granted your patience. Let us not live our life declaring what we believe to be good for ourselves. Only to be the whole time walking further and further away from you instead of close to you. God, help us to see what you have declared to be good for our life and to walk closely to you and in fellowship with you covered by your grace. Thank you for that. We love you, God. As we close this time together out this morning, I just want to give you an opportunity to spend some time worshiping God, to reflect on his word, to reflect on the fact that God's judgment is inevitable, but his grace is available. And you have every day of your life that you can walk in fellowship with God. And the ability to walk in fellowship with God is greater than anything else in this life. And if you have not accepted the grace of God and put yourself under the grace of Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord, then I implore you to do that this morning as we worship him. He is your only salvation. There's nothing else. So Paul said this. He said, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was risen He was resurrected. He died on a cross for you. He took the wrath for your sin. But he didn't stay dead. He defeated death. He defeated hell. You don't have to fear death. Jesus defeated it. Believe in his resurrection. Believe it's real. And then confess with your mouth, Paul says, that Jesus is Lord. Take everything off the throne of your life that's not Christ and put him on it. As we worship in these closing moments today, I encourage you, confess him as Lord of your life. As we worship, there may be some searching in your heart as David prayed, God, search my heart and know me. Reveal anything in me that is not of you. Maybe you need to take some time as we worship in these closing moments to say, God, am I declaring something good for my life that's not good? And this thing that I'm declaring as good is pulling me further away from you.
Just allow God to search your heart today. If you need to come to the altar and spend time around the altar, you can do that as a sign of surrender or around the stage and make it an altar. You can do it at your seat. You can do it wherever. But just take a moment and worship God. Surrender your life to Him. There's nothing better we can do. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccambin.com, go to our contact page. You'll find a link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.